Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. And welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios and I am the show's host. We get to welcome amazing guests and experts from the healthcare and health IT industry that share their knowledge with our listeners. So today we have a very special guest and I will let her introduce herself. So Ruby, can you take a moment and share with our audience who you are and what you do in the healthcare IT space? I can and Joy, it's what a pleasure it is to be here. I'm so, so excited to be finally talking to you. I know we've known each other for a while online, but um, just actually having the time to talk with you today is such a pleasure. So I'm Ruby Gadarab. I am the CEO and founder of a company called MDisrupt. And effectively, and we can talk about how we got here, but effectively MDisrupt is the health tech industry's leading marketplace for experts from healthcare. So if anybody needs like chief medical officers fractionally, regulatory fractionally, anything like that, that's basically what we do. So I imagine that comes into play a lot with healthcare startups. It does. (laughs) (laughs) Startups, scale-ups, and actually some of the enterprise companies. I think part of our mission, we have two missions. Part of the mission is to democratize access to health industry experts so that digital health can build and commercialize and scale their products and get them to patients faster. And the other part is to organize the world's digital health products by performance. So we'll get to that later, I'm sure. Okay. So how long has MDisrupt been around? How long have you been out? at this? So we started at the best possible time for a company to start, which is just before the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) We started at tail end of 2019. And then of course, in March 2020, the world imploded. Mm -hmm. And that's where we just went to work building the company. It actually turned out to be an interesting opportunity for us because as a marketplace, we had access to the experts a lot of companies, a lot of uh, individuals were furloughed, so they were reconsidering their life choices. And then at the same time, many companies were scaling up COVID operations. And so that kind of became the um, jumping off point for Disrupt. I think for a lot of people, and I could count myself included, that it was sort of this weird blessing in disguise and not to say nobody wishes a pandemic on anybody, but it it certainly put a pause on our normal life, which allowed us to, you know, have some retrospective thought of like, okay, how do, what do our, where do we want to focus and where do we go from here? Exactly. And I think it was a couple of things. It was to your point, 
many of us as humans just reconsidered our life choices and our work choices and all the things we're passionate about. Many companies were able to scale up COVID operations. And then also we're all in digital health. And so digital health adoption took a nice, it was a nice inflection point for adoption. We saw telehealth being adopted. We saw at-home testing now becoming mainstream. We saw remote patient monitoring devices, people caring about them much, much more. And so it was this kind of, what do we call it these days? We call it, um, tell Marco to I heard a term recently that it was like there's something like a canon event. I just literally, and it was basically something that is inherent. I don't know, sort of like causes the better or is like core to the story, something along those lines. It's like a fusion of four, right? Like Mm -hmm. the market forces, the people forces, the opportunity forces. It was, it was, it was good. It was very, I mean, it was horrible that we had a pandemic. It was good from a how to have the time and space to build a business. Of course. So how did you get there? Like where, can you tell me more about your journey? getting to the start of of creating MDisrupt? I can. So my background is I am on the commercialization side of life sciences, genomics, and digital health. And I've been doing that for 26 years. And me personally, building and scaling health products is a formula, right? There's a series of steps that you do and you do this, 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 and you scale and you skip a step or two, you either fail or you become Theranos, right? So for me, it's... Mm -hmm. And after doing this for many, many years, I landed my dream job. And my dream job was VP of commercial marketing at 23andMe. And that was literally like the most amazing learning ground to learn about digital health, to learn about the consumerization of health, to learn about building company who had had challenges with the FDA and how to actually come back from that. And so I was there for... Did you get to start before the FDA thing or after the FDA thing? I started after the FDA. (sighs) And it's actually, it was one of the best things I ever did from a career perspective, from a learning perspective. And so I started it not that far after the FDA had shut 23andMe down. And at the time, they couldn't sell health products to consumers. And so they spent and they were working really diligently with the FDA to get back on the market and do all the right things. My job was to help them figure out some of the things to do on the B2B side, right? So how do we educate? If we're going to come back with a good, great health product, how are we going to educate physicians to care about it? Is there an opportunity in population health? If you give, if a health system gives you genetic testing for free, do people adopt it more and can it inform about our health better? So those are some of the projects that I worked on. But one of the things that was interesting at the time is that there was a ton of digital health companies forming. And I was really interested in the companies forming around us. They're making really interesting consumer products, but nothing that could be used or scaled in a health system. And so I was like, why is all this money going to stuff that's just not going to scale in the health system? So I left 23andMe because I thought it was an opportunity to help those founders. If I believed that, you know, I understood the playbook, maybe I could help those founders. So I consulted for 25 companies back to back in two and a half years. Well, I learned some amazing things. And so the first thing I learned is that the founders of these companies are incredible, passionate, talented humans, right? Most of them were building, were trying to solve a health problem that they themselves had experienced or somebody in their family had. And so it's a real lived experience. So the passion around that is different from when you're just building something that you can't relate to. And then the third thing I discovered is that 
they all came from tech, banking, and marketing backgrounds, right? And so they'd never actually built and scaled a health company before. And then as I looked around the teams, they didn't always have the right people in the room either. So that was kind of the market insight that led me to Fandem Disrupt. And the insight was, if the future builders of our healthcare are coming from outside of healthcare, how do we empower them, right? How do we bring them the best possible people to the table, into their teams, right? To help them build and commercialize and scale a health product, get it to the patient faster. Well, and that's one of the most important things because one thing we've talked about often is a lot of tech folks who start a company that you create a solution that doesn't necessarily have a perfect problem to solve in healthcare. Like, look at this cool, shiny thing that I can do, but then you try to apply it to healthcare and it doesn't always fit. If they don't have somebody internally within their team to kind of guide them through the health care aspect or perspective. I mean, that's a very, very, very important piece to include in scaling a business, specifically that in the healthcare industry. Exactly right. And so we did see this quite a lot at the time, which is technology backing into a problem. Uh-huh. We did see that a lot. And then the the other thing is it's not just the technology backing into the problem. It's does this, how is it going to get paid for, right? Like right. in healthcare, the, the the problem in healthcare is that the user, the consumer, the payer are not the same people and do not have the same incentives, right? Mm-hmm. And the other piece is, how does this work in a clinician workflow, right? Yeah. Are you making life easier for clinicians? Because one of, if you're not making life easier for clinicians, even if it's the best technology in the world, they're not going to adopt it. Right. And so it's very complex. Well, now I'm thinking about your level of expertise because you're dealing with multiple startups at a time and also the CMOs. I'm sure you have information on funding, like navigating how folks actually get funding, who gets the opportunity to scale and so much more than that. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Funding is a whole topic on its own, Joy. We can have a whole section (laughs) on that. But I think, you know, the key thing is like, let's get to basics, right? How do you have the right people at the table in the first place? How do you not waste millions of dollars building stuff that isn't going to work and isn't going to scale? And so, you know, I think about the playbook as, you know, are you using regulatory as a strategy? Are you making sure it's a core part of your component? Are you engaging clinicians and your target market early in the process? Do you have a chief medical officer or a chief scientific officer who can help you do the studies that you need to do for your analytical validation, your clinical validation, your utility studies? There's many studies you need to do. And then to your point, back to the beginning, you can't do any of that if you don't have the money, right? Right. There is so much opportunity, but I think part of this is also finding the investors that understand what it's going to take from a time perspective, from a money perspective to build in healthcare. Do you kind of work as a matchmaker between all three of those? Like, No, no. we focus really heavily on expert matching to clients. Think of us like, do you know the company Upwork? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. We're Upwork for digital health, where all the experts are clinicians, regulatory people, product people who know how to build in HIPAA environments, payers, commercialization and market access strategists. So anything that you could need fractionally to help you build a health company, that's what we can basically do. And everybody's an operator. But you're ultimately the platform to allow for that to happen. You're not necessarily getting involved in the business deals themselves. Somebody, a company that's a startup goes on and they say, I'm looking for a fractional CMO and they can look through a ton of profiles and then engage with those folks on an individual 
basis, correct? We're a platform that does that. So we don't do search, we do recommendations. So you say, this is what I need. And we'll say, here are the top three or top five most recommended experts to help you in this area. And so we've done chief medical officers. During COVID, we put 10 people into a lab when they were scaling up lab operations. We've done product leaders who have stayed with the company for two to three years on a fractional basis to get them to an important milestone. We've done medical advisory boards, right? And so, yes, we are the platform that match makes health industry experts with startup scale-ups and enterprise companies who need the fractional expertise. And then the thing that you raised earlier about startups is one of the issues about startups is how do you get to your milestone with minimal FTE spend, right? And if a medical officer is going to cost you three or 400K a year, that is not a good way to spend the money, but you do need it. So this is how you get, you know, a 10 or 20 year experience chief medical officer fractionally in the early days to help you get to some of those milestones until you can raise the money to do the bigger things. So that's kind of how we think about it. That's incredible. Can you share any case studies? Are there any like particular companies that you're specifically proud of or happy to have been part of you know, their growth? Yes. So there's a couple that I love. So, well, I love all of our clients, but there's a couple in particular that allow me to talk about them. One of them is a company called Xander Cardian. And they are building a remote patient monitoring device. And they came to us early on because they wanted help with a fractional chief medical officer. And so we've put a fractional chief medical officer in with them. That person is amazing and they love working with him, right? He guides them. He helps them. He's the sounding board for the CEO. He helps them figure out the studies that they need to do. So that's one that we really, really love working with. And another one is a company called Cognito. And Cognito are working on a solution for Alzheimer's. I believe it's a neuromodulation device. And that they've worked with us really deeply to engage clinicians in the process and also payers. And so they're two examples of companies that I think they're doing the right things. They're bringing in the clinical voices into their companies early and often, and they're utilizing them well so that they can make sure that they're actually solving problems that can, I mean, building products that can scale. Are you in a position to provide these services to like an unlimited number of startups? I mean, what's the capacity that you have? Because it's a pretty powerful like service that you're offering. Thank you. <laughs> we have about 1,500 experts in the network now, and they cover, as I mentioned, all the commercial aspects, all the regulatory all the clinical. We have worked with over 70 companies and we've also started to work with a number of enterprise companies. So Optum, the country's largest payer, is one of our clients. Grail is one of our clients. So we're able to do that. You know, part of the what we did over the last year or so is we built the tech to scale, right? So we built the tech to be able to do the recommendations. We built the tech to be able to do, you know, the interviews on the platform. And then the next phase of what we're building is how to transact between the expert and the and the clients. Are you guys using generative AI at all? <laughs> we'll be. I don't want to be the company that leads with that, but right? If it creates efficiencies, I mean, back to your original thing, don't use tech for the sake of tech. Find the problem that you're solving, make sure that it's a real problem, and then use the right tools to be able to solve yeah. that. We will likely be using generative AI, but it will be in the context of 
lead with the problem first. Yeah, understood. I would just imagine that if you've got a lot of folks either with expertise or organizations looking for it, you might be able to quick more quickly get to matchmaking, right? You guys have that's this exactly in common. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. And one of the issues though in the whole industry, Joy, is that even the taxonomy for this category isn't that good, right? So when somebody comes to me, they say, hey, Ruby, I need a regulatory expert to help me with a 510k clearance who understands genomics direct to consumer, right? Do you see yeah. how nuanced that sentence is? Right? Yeah, specific, very specific. <laughs> very specific. And then imagine every single one of those requests coming in like that. So one of the things we had to do in the early days of MDisrupt is we had to reimagine the taxonomy, right? Like, which is what are the specific skills that people need to have to be able to service which types of companies, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of part of, a big part of the tech we built is around that, right? How do we get the request from the client in a way that we can really match make with the experts? And so that's a lot of work's already been gone, has gone into that. But I can imagine generative AI can make things a lot easier for us, especially with some of the new language learning models. Well, now you've got me thinking about all the folks that sign up as experts on the platform. Is it kind of like Upwork where it's available to anybody that qualifies to a certain degree? It's not anybody. So we're very... That's what, well, I mean, they're experts. They have to have a minimum set requirement, yes. but like, what is that minimum yes. requirement? So the minimum requirement for us is we are looking with, to really add value to a company, you have to have 10 years or more experience in healthcare. So that's the, okay. kind of the bar that we're looking at. So it's either somebody who has 10 years or more experience, or if they work commercially, it's director levels and above, right? So the idea is, can you get like, you know, a VP level or a C level person from a health system or a payer in your team in a way that can make you go much faster? So we're looking for those two things. And then the third thing that we look for is, cultural fit, right? There's a big culture gap between tech and healthcare, right? And so we need to pull out the healthcare experts that know how to work with startups, that understand what it's going to take, that are going to move fast enough for a startup who wants to meet their milestones, but help them understand how to do it responsibly, right? Yeah. Those are kind of the, the selection criteria that we're looking for. And then separately to that, we look for any type of expert that would be helpful to a company at any stage of building, scaling, commercializing. So the three areas we kind of index heavily on are clinical, commercial, regulatory, right? Under commercial, there's product, there's market access, there's payers, there's BD, there's all the things. And then clinical, we cover 35 medical disciplines, and these are actually clinicians. And I use the word clinicians very deliberately because many of them are physicians. Many of them are nurse practitioners, genetic counselors, everybody who could be in the care continuum. So. so people come to us a lot looking for like, hey, do you know where I could work or is anybody hiring, et cetera? But this is another option for folks that could essentially freelance to a degree. Freelancing, yeah. exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. And we've seen such a uptick in the last year or so, we probably get about 100 folks a month coming to us, signing up on the platform right now. So That's incredible. We're excited about that. We, we just want to make sure that we can get them the most amazing projects for their skills to utilize their superpowers. Well, on both sides of it. So is it better to... What, what did they say? Move fast, break things, something along those lines? <laughs> so in healthcare, we say do no harm. 
And in tech, we say move fast and break things. And at Disrupt, we say move fast responsibly, right? Okay. So the fusion of, yes, you need to move fast because innovation doesn't wait for anybody. But this is healthcare. We need to do it responsibly. We need to not kill anyone in the process. We need to showcase our data. We need to make sure that we're getting reimbursed. We need to make sure we're not breaking regulatory. And we need to make sure that we are demonstrating our outcomes. Okay, so... You and I follow each other on Twitter and on several other platforms, but I love I feel like you're my BFF, my, yeah. my, my digital BFF joint. You're absolutely like my digital soulmate, which is great. <laughs> but I watched you kind of navigate when the SVP, SVB bank was tanking and how outspoken you were about the challenges that, you know, that everybody was facing and just like, kind of like a little bit crazy. This is a crazy time. How do we navigate it? What do we got to do? What were some of the things that showed up for you during that whole debacle? And how did you not only like manage it yourself, but advise others? Because you're in a position to really share your knowledge with all these startups, I imagine. And they were greatly affected. Are we speaking about SVB specifically or the last three years? Because the last three years had a lot of things happening. You tell me. You ha- are closer to it. To that. That's where I started. But I would love to hear your, your expert. The generation of founders that have founded companies in the last three years have been through a global pandemic. They've been through a crazy, frothy market where valuations were crazy and money is free flowing and all of their competitors got funded too. Then they've been in a massive economic downturn where everybody had to figure out how to pull back, figure out what kind of fundraising they were going to do, if any, do layoffs. There's been a ton of layoffs. And then we had to deal with the SVB debacle as the only word I can use to describe. (laughs) And so when you think about these founders, they have been through the wars, right? They're becoming wartime CEOs, right? And it's easy to be a CEO when everything's going great. I mean, it's hard to be a CEO, but it's much easier when everything's going great. It is way more difficult when things are not going great. And so one of the things that I think is important to recognize is whoever makes it out of the last three years is going to have a very different set of skill sets. It's going to be very, very, they're going to be very, very resilient. And you're experiencing things in building a business that could probably take you decades if we hadn't had this intensive crash course over the last three years. And so on one hand, it's been really hard for so many people, so many of us. And on the other hand, it's been the most incredible learning opportunity. And so what I, with the SVB thing, one of the things that was amazing was how the community came together, right? Um, as the banking crisis started to unfold in that week, the number of investors that reached out to us to see if we were okay, the number of our advisors who said, here are the different resources, the number of people who we I didn't even know in person that I met on Twitter that week that just came and helped and gave us advice and gave us contacts. I mean, I'm going to call somebody out. She was in two people out. One is Sarah Letterman, right? So Sarah Letterman is a VC. I had met her on Twitter like a few weeks before. And the week of the Silicon Valley bank issues, she was going crazy, sending me resources, 
other banks, other founders to talk to, other advisors. It was amazing, right? How the community came together. But she was really, really incredible. And then there's another woman online who, her name is Stevie. Stevie McTweets is her handle, right? Do you know her? I think I follow her, yes. But she was incredible as well, like creating resources for founders, you know, finding the influential people who could change the game. There were so many things that she was doing. She was staying up late at night, writing letters and helping with policy and all kinds of things, right? Things that take time and effort. And like, these are the people that all came together. So it was amazing to see community coming together. And to the founders, the only thing I can say is it's been the best lesson in resilience and wartime CEOing. It's a crash. It's a crash course, right? <laughs> Just like any major problem, I think when you get onto the other side of it, you come into a weird place where you actually are grateful for it, grateful for the challenge, even for that exact reason. That like, oh, I wouldn't have learned those lessons otherwise. And it's it's sometimes hard to be in that place, but I do think that <laughs> it's important to kind of come from that. Like, you know what? I'm actually thankful for this problem that I didn't expect. And that's a great mindset to have like because the problem teaches you some stuff. The other thing that the problem taught me personally was it showed me people, right? It showed me the people that are going to come to our rescue and to help us. And we can save this for another time, but I've had a really interesting fundraising journey, but it's coming to a to a close now. And I'm really excited with how it's coming to a close. My lead investor was incredible, right? She showed up. She figured out different things that we need. I mean, I don't want to talk about it too much until we actually announce, but she figured out the things that we needed to do to get ourselves through that difficult few weeks. Again, making recommendations and introductions, information packets. It was just like, then you know that you've got the right people around you. And I think that's another thing that I always think about for founders. The thing that changed the game for me was finding my tribe, right? Mm -hmm. Finding my tribe. Mm -hmm investors, finding my tribe of advisors, finding the first believers. And they that really changed the game and the trajectory for us. Incredible. I have a feeling you and I could probably sit and talk all afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> it would be lovely. I would love to do that. We should totally do that. We should do it with <laughs> afternoon tea one day. Yes, that would be fantastic. Yeah. If So what advice do you have? Because we probably should wrap up, but I would like, okay, what advice do you have for startup companies or people who are looking for work or any lessons, just, you know, quick lesson learned from your whole life experience. If you're just like into a snippet, not a big deal, right? <laughs> well, the thing that I think is important is what got us through it over the last three years of interesting times is my team, right? I have the most incredible team on the executive level and on the uh, director and employee level. And so when things have gone tough. I've been very, very transparent with the team. And I've gone and I've said, you know, we have two choices. Choice one is to let some people go so that we can conserve runway. And choice two is that we all take a pay cut so that we can extend our runway. And I'm getting, I want your input. What is, what would you like me to do? And my team said, we will all take a pay cut so we can stay together. Right. That's and incredible. It was incredible. Like, and I cannot like be more grateful for the people in the company that have re I mean it's been a like it's been a tough time on the fundraising side and like I said I'm really excited to announce what's about to happen but it was not easy right and finding the right people that believe in what you believe see what you see and bring them into your company that changes the game for founders so that's the first bit of advice the second thing I will tell you is that externally 
It's about finding the tribe, right? Your job as a founder, and I didn't know this in the beginning, isn't to convince the people that don't believe, is to find the people that believe you quickly, right? Mm-hmm. That see the world the way you see it, that believe that mm-hmm. you are the ones that can actually make that change. And the faster you can find the believers, the better things are going to be for you. And don't worry about all the non-believers. It takes, I don't know what the stat is these days, but it feels like it takes a hundred meetings to get one yes, right? Mm-hmm. And it's particularly hard for women and women founders and founders of color. So it's yeah. numbers game. That reminds, that just makes me think of attention. I think of attention a lot as an economy. And it's like, listen, I have an opportunity to spend my time and energy giving something attention. What do I want to give my attention to? And it's really been a game changer to focus on the positive and not the negative. That instead of like, I'm not going to try to tear down and be angry about the way that things are or the problems that I see. I'm going to instead spend my time focusing on building what I want to see and the positive things in the world. And it just is, it's internally and I think externally a very powerful place to be. And when you're not able to be like shaken from that either, it's it's even more of a game changer. And you know what, Joy, you're absolutely right. Somebody asked me recently, what was it that accelerated me getting to the final stages of the fundraising. And it was what you just described as a change in attitude, right? The change in attitude of, I am in the process of finding my believers. This is all it is. And the second I find my believers, I'll find more of them, right? Yeah. And like changing that mindset into the search for believers rather than the complaining about all the things that don't work and all the reasons it's unfair. It is unfair. And sometimes it doesn't work. And some businesses are not fundable by VC, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's all about, you are 100% right. It's all about the attitude. It's the attitude that gets you to the other side. All right. So Ruby, if people want to either connect with you as an individual or connect with your organization, where would you direct them to do so? (laughs) So if they want to connect with me, I am very active on Twitter and LinkedIn. And then if they want to connect with M Disrupt, we would love to help any digital health company or life sciences company. And our website is www.mdisrupt.com with one D. Gotcha. Thank you so much for your time today. I hope we get more together very soon. I hope so too, Joy. It's so lovely to see you. Thank you so much for hosting me. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Again, thank you so much for listening to the hit like a girl podcast. I am truly grateful for you. And I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast or maybe leave us a rating or review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All those things help us podcasters out so much. I'm the show's host, Joy Rios, and I'll see you next time.